Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. We are back with another Neurodiversity Stories. We do these every single Friday at 11 o'clock and it's amazing for all your continued support. Guys, we have had some phenomenal guests on uh, onto our shows and today, with no exception, we have another incredible guest. We have uh, Liz Lolly, uh, and she is gonna be telling us all about uh, her incredible experiences with neurodiversity and dyslexia uh, and, and her story and, and the role that she's played in this. It's been absolutely incredible. I could talk to this lady all day. Um, so. I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna tell you all about uh, Liz shortly. So why are we here? So my name is Darren Clark, and I'm a, a global neurodiversity consultant. So I work with organisations across the globe, making it more neurodiverse through training and speaking. So guys, we do this every single day. If you would like to share your story on neurodiversity stories, then please do get in touch. So uh, without further ado, I will introduce my guest, Liz Lolly. So she's a communications and education consultant. Uh, and as a trainee PE teacher, Liz became interested in dyspraxia and chose to do an assignment about it. What is the effect of it and how to help a child overcome some of the challenges? Then in her first teaching job, she taught a dyslexic boy who taught, who thought was so inspiring and positive in the way that she coped, he coped with his difficulties. However, on the first parents evening, when Liz said this to the parents, they explained that he regularly cried because he thought he was stupid. This developed a passion for ensuring that people with dyslexia and other neurodiversities knew their strengths rather than being held back by challenges. Liz then went on to have her own delightfully dyslexic son who amazes her and inspires her all the time with his different ways of thinking and empathy. So guys, I'm gonna bring on Liz and uh, it's gonna be an incredible talk. If you, like I said, if you've got uh, any questions for Liz throughout this uh, episode, please pop them in the chat. Also, let us know where you're tuning in from uh, and it, it would be great uh, for you to all to connect. So without further ado, I welcome Liz. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, you're most welcome. You're most welcome. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on to our neurodiversity stories. I hope my introduction uh, did you justice. Um, it's in incredible. Like yeah, I said, not to live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not not at all. Not not at all. So, Liz, I've, I've obviously I've, I've given you, you know, uh, some people a little bit of an introduction about yourself. Um, if you would like to just again just uh, explain a little bit more about yourself and and um, how dyslexia and neurodiversity. Uh, is associated with yourself that'd be amazing yeah um so well I suppose firstly if I talk about my actual job title because people say well what is that where does that come yeah. from like, kind of something I've made up <laughs> so um, <laughs> I've been involved with children with teaching and then through the London 2012 bid for the Olympic Games I got involved in communications and PR um so I've got this communications and education <laughs> Well, these two different hats yep. and continually through the years especially when my kids were little I did part-time this part-time that squeeze different things together um, and I sort of went between the two partly because it worked for my children partly because I have a bit of a crazy mind that needs to have lots going on I can um, that. <laughs> and then about two and a half years ago it's like actually why don't I just combine the two all the time um, so a lot of my communication work and my education work actually a lot of it revolves around dyslexia and neurodiversity but then I do some things that are purely comms and, and not dyslexia related very occasionally um, and I currently still teach um, so I originally was a primary school teacher okay. sometimes currently teaching in a secondary school <laughs> much to my poor children's delight because it's their secondary school um, it was one of these things again where it tied in with where I was going freelance um, wanted a little bit of security although I like that risk element it's nice to have some security the school my children were at needed a part-time PE teacher for maternity cover and then after the first um, year I'd said I, I can't do it beyond a year because I've got loads of other work going on it's been great how busy I've been with all the uh, consultancy work yeah and then as soon as we went into lockdown a year ago I messaged my head of department and said if there's anything next year I'll do it whatever because <laughs> I just miss the students so much already I hate not working with kids and students 
Yeah. They're just, just amazing. They're what makes me buzz. So I've carried on for another year. Um, having said that, I have absolutely definitely said I'm stopping this summer uh, because I'm taking on a part-time master's in psychology to help with all my different areas. Oh, incredible. So I will still, I'm sure I'll still find a way to get into schools and to do some work with schools, but I won't officially be teaching after the summer. Yeah. Oh, so the master's in psychology, do you say? Yeah, that's that's incredible. That psychology has always been something that I've been incredibly fascinated uh, by. Is that something that's always been a passion of yours or is it something that you've? Um, I did it at A level. um, And yeah, I was always interested when it came into my my university degree. I straight away did a teaching degree, um, as I said, primary special. Yeah. primary but and PE specialism um so a lot of psychology came into the sports side of it and the education side and I've always loved that um and I just think my big passions now are around dyslexia and neurodiversity and the effect it can have on people negatively and positively and mental health so the idea of being able to get more in-depth knowledge about psychology um it just fits so well Absolutely. And and so your your story, the story that I, I mentioned at the start around dyslexia, that, that was something that you kind of um, you, you experienced firsthand with the with, with the student that you were working prior prior to that. Was there any kind of dyslexia awareness uh, around that or was that how? Because I know you've done a lot, a, lot, a lot of work around education, um, you know, your background, you know, massively in, into in the education side of it. But obviously that that story is is very heartwarming and and uh it was just was that your first experience of that or was it was the first experience i was aware of um looking back i mean i'd i'd uh coach gymnasts from the age of 14 i was coaching i was running kids clubs in the evenings i was helping with sunday school so I, i've always loved working with younger kids um and looking back a lot of them would have been neurodiverse and they were probably the ones that I particularly thought, oh, what's going on here? I need to help this child. There's something going on. But I wasn't aware of it until yeah. that first teaching job where I had this lovely little boy, Charlie, and he just see, he was so able, so bright and switched on. Um, and he was good at sport. He had all sorts of things going for him. And the school I worked with were very good, actually, around dyslexia and had a specialist come in who um, she actually worked with a lot of MPs who are dyslexic, interestingly, and her backstory was really interesting. Okay. Um, and I just thought this boy is just so inspirational. He's amazing. So I was there all young and fresh faced at 22, my first parents evening and saw the, his parents and said, oh, I just think he's amazing because he doesn't let his dyslexia hold him back at all. He's still so confident. And they both went quiet and looked at each other. And I thought, oh, no, what have I said? Like, do they not know? What have I I done? Um, And I said, well, he cries most evenings because he thinks he's stupid. And I just, well, I almost did sit there and cry myself because I just, and I couldn't get across to them enough how he definitely wasn't stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, I understood that, yeah, things were frustrating for him. And because he couldn't do things in the same way as everyone else and within the education system, we aren't always great at flexibility. We tend to be, well, you've got to, you know, this tick box, that tick box. No, if you're not meeting those, then there's something wrong with you. You know, what's, what's the problem? Rather than, oh, my goodness, you think differently. That's amazing. Which is, from yeah. then on, how I try to approach things with my teaching. It, 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 like you said, you know, there are some incredible things that's happening within the educational side of it, and you know, the, the you know, the, the corporate side of it as well. But there is there there are some certain structures that are kind of set in stone, and that we have to kind of work with. And, and you take someone from a neurodiverse background, you know, dyslexic, it's it's very difficult then to to take someone who struggles to then say, well, this is this is the process, you know, and and it is it is it's a battle enough, you know. You know, I can imagine, you know, when the teacher sets a job and, you know, the task, sorry, and then the student then has to not only know exactly how to complete the task, but how to know to do the task around the certain ways that everyone else kind of kind of works. And that's, you know, like you said, that can be a real, a real difficult challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. So they're actually trying to change their natural way of doing things at the same time as doing something that's quite challenging. And I don't think many people can 
can do that. I like to do things the way I do them. And if someone told me, in fact, I'm, I'd say I'm almost opposite to dyslexic. I really struggle with images and pictures okay. um, and with words. So if yeah. someone said, right, you've got to do this piece of work and it's all got to be in drawing. In yeah. fact, I had that experience at secondary school. I remember crying my first year yeah. of secondary school in an RE lesson. And I think this is where some of my empathy and passion to help other children has come from. Although I've never had dyslexia, I haven't had those difficulties. Um, I was quite a sensitive child. And my RE teacher was intent on every week, the homework was drawing a picture of a Bible story. Okay. I can't draw. I've never been able to draw. It's not me at all. And it really gives me a fear factor, which I now can relate to how dyslexic children often feel about writing or someone with dyscalculia feels about maths, which I don't get at all. I love those things, but tell me to do some art and I am petrified. And Who's so the teacher made me cry because oh, she said, you. you haven't tried. You haven't tried with this drawing, this homework. I have. I've tried so hard. I really did. I hated failing. So there was no way yeah. I would not try. Um, and I think that's helped me a lot with the whole, I can see that panic on children's face. And it's not that they're not trying or they don't yeah. want to. There's a block going on and there's all the um, anxiety and associated absolutely and that it, it to try and demonstrate that that feeling um i mean we all get it whether you're neurodiverse, neurodiverse or or not there is that kind of gut feeling of you know when you're asked to do something and it's out of it not necessarily out of your comfort zone but it really does make you feel like i physically can't do this and one of the demonstrations which uh which i i did which was uh one in one of the talks that i've done and and again it's it's um so when the audience are, are there and again only people um, that would like to participate in this can obviously participate. So I don't really want to make people uncomfortable because, again, even in the audience and when you're doing a talk, you don't know if those people are neurodiverse in, in any way, shape or form. So I, I stipulate that and, and, and make sure. Then hand, obviously, a piece of paper out. And the, the first writing of the words are, uh, you know, uh, plain, plain English, you know, well, easy to read English. And then the words start getting mixed up and it gets harder and harder and harder as you, you know, you start going down. And it's interesting to see at the start, people grab it with confidence and they're going to, you know, yep. obviously in the talk. And then it gets slower and slower and more confused. And you can just see they're, you know, not, you're not taking joy from their confidence that's going down, but you can see almost them falling into the chair and they're really kind of struggling to, to see. And some of them can't even get to the, you know, the last sentence. And then you, you, you know, reveal that that's how a dyslexic student may start every single lesson within their educational system. And yeah, it's, it's I've done exactly the same kind of thing when training um, TAs and teachers in school, because I just think it's the most powerful thing. And yes, it's not nice to get go through that yourself, of feeling panic, the frustration, and some people, the anger. And I'm like, yeah. well, look, and you wonder why that child misbehaves in your class and you think it's because they're naughty. No, yeah. they're frustrated, they're anxious, they don't know what to do. They're asking for help, and it's so powerful. I, I only, you know, thought about this recently, you know, um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, incredibly fortunate I, I work uh, for myself, so I can kind of work, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock at night. You know, I, I kind of work, um, and obviously I do work in between that, but there's, you know, I can kind of pick, within reason, I can pick and choose what hours I work when I'm at my strengths. But then if you take the educational system where you then have between the hours of nine and three, yes, there's, you know, there's lunch times and breaks and stuff. It seems very pressured that there's a certain amount of time that you need to adhere to stuff, but you also need to be in the right zone to be able yeah. to do something. It's, it's like asking someone, I guess, in, in, in marketing or something when, you know, come into the office nine o'clock, right, sit at your computer, be creative. It's, it's you know, I, I guess those added pressures of those, those times for, for a student could, could be really tricky. Absolutely. And and again, it's something that I'm I'm similar to you in that most of my work is for myself and I work at all sorts of strange time, much more alive late at night. Um, occasionally I have inspiration in the middle of the night. So I will start writing then or I will start working on a campaign. I will do it when it suits me. And yeah, then you think we expect a child to be creative when we tell them to. Okay, now write a story. What can you tell me about this? 
and some and yes i'm i'm i'd say i'm a sort of strict but fair teacher um and i do think there's a certain level of you've got to do what you're told to extent because life is like that yeah but there's got to be allowances and there's got to be an understanding i think that yeah we can't all perform at our best all the time um Liz, do you think that it um because I tend to work, it, it, there's two extremes for me. Um, I tend to do short bursts, so I'll do 20 minutes, or I'll hyper-focus where I could just be working for hours and forget to eat and drink. You know, and I don't know if that's my ADHD or my dyslexia, and I could just literally, it's almost like nothing else around me exists, you know, in, in that sense, so I can miss appointments sometimes, and, you know, those 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 elements. Do you think in the educational side of it, you know, short short spurt because we you know standard is kind of an hour uh you know a, an hour's lesson yeah. do you think it again just in the opinion do you think it would be better if it, you had short bursts for you know definitely for a neurodiversity um child or do you think I, that would help i'm just speaking for my feeling, personal experience. yeah my feeling with the majority of best teaching practices or actually most of life i'd probably apply this to is there's no one size fits all approach. But Absolutely. for this education, we've got to have some structure, but it's variety. And I think for me, um, I know as a teacher, it'd be very difficult if every lesson was very short because you couldn't always get into what you what you wanted to get. You'd just be getting to the point, having introduced it and infused the children. And then it'd be like, okay, end of that now. And you'd never quite get to the point you want to. But for me, and one of the things I run a weekly webinar, um, about touch type read and spell and one of the things I always point out on there is we're, we're very insistent that you shouldn't have the child doing the touch typing program for too long at a time or an adult okay. even because you start making mistakes you lose confidence you lose motivation um, and my big thing and it's always been this in the classroom as well is to have a brain break um, and when I talk right. in primary schools I would regularly get every child in the class to stand up step back from their desk and do something silly and physical. Um, the, the one I often use an example in the webinar is for younger children, get them to act out and sing head, shoulders, knees and toes. It just gives them that refresh. It stops them from stressing about whatever they were stressing or over-focusing, gives their body some relaxation. So if the tension's starting to go there, that all drops. They sit back down and honestly, you can see like a different group of children in front of you. Absolutely. I, I think back to, you know, my kind of corporate days when I was um, in, you know, uh, board meetings, manager meetings, whatever mm -hmm. they, they, they talk of. And, and we used to have one every um, this is before I found out my dyslexia and ADHD. Uh, we used to have one every single Monday. And I knew from from 1230 till 330, we would be sat. I mean, it's incredible. We've been sat in a in a in a room with no windows. Uh, oh. And we would just basically be going around to each department manager, senior manager and, and um, relaying business plans, you know, and what um, you know, sales were away, shrink and all these different things. Right. And I just remember being absolutely exhausted. And, and you know, I would have, uh, you know, it would have been amazing to have uh, that element of probably not working that long but those kind of breaks bringing into the you know the office base I guess you know of, yeah. of not saying that we're gonna get everyone in the office doing hands or, or, or don't know maybe we, we no don't. harm at all I think it's <laughs> a revelation honestly I'll start a campaign it's so <laughs> beneficial and actually thinking about it the amount of times as a teacher we get told for a specific child as part of their individual learning plan or behavior plan that if you can find an opportunity for them to walk around the class maybe get them yeah. to give out worksheets that's all a bit more tricky at the moment in COVID times but get them to move around because then it keeps their focus it's like actually that will help the majority of children and definitely most neurodiverse children it would really help them find an opportunity for them and instead of waiting for them to just think I can't sit anymore and they leave their seat and they get into trouble, give them the opportunity to succeed rather than fail. So give them an opportunity. Oh, could you just pop over and get that for me? Oh, could you just go and give a message next door? Whatever it might be is so beneficial. And the, yeah. um, the impact it will have on their mental health and their learning is just 
huge for such a tiny little thing. Absolutely. It's just that break, isn't it? It's breaking that mm -hmm. system to then re-energize um, yeah. and, and stop yourself. Because, because you know, we know that, you know, our attention spans, I think they say our attention spans are less than the goldfish now, which I don't know how they can, I don't know who's doing that marketing research. I'd love to meet that person. <laughs> <laughs> they come back, you know, we, we found out, this is what we found out. I don't, I, you know, I, I, I'm not too sure how they do that. I don't think it's actually goldfish. <laughs> but, um, but it is, you're absolutely right about that breaking it. Liz, you mentioned that your son has uh, dyslexia. Um, and, and what are the kind of things that you've, you've you found? Obviously, you know, you worked in the educational and you still do work in the educational uh, system. Um, and obviously you had that incredible story uh, as well. What are some of the things that you've, you've seen dyslexia and understood as, as a parent, if you wouldn't mind my sharing. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I guess that's helped me to support other parents is living through the, um, being neurodiverse, a neurodiverse student is very frustrating obvious, or often in the classroom. Being yeah. a parent of a neurodiverse student is incredibly frustrating. Um, and people come to me and say, but the school aren't listening, the school aren't doing this. Well, hang on, the school aren't against you. They might not have the understanding. And one of the key things I do, and I run some parent workshops and webinars and things, and bring in my communication side of things, actually, of just the importance of schools and parents talking to each other. Yeah. And I didn't get it right. And I always... <laughs> Put my hand up and own up to this and and there was one time where i had to walk out of a meeting about my son okay. um and his dad who is much calmer than me <laughs> um he's dyslexic himself he's a much slower processor yeah i let him to do the talking because i was losing it because i was just getting so frustrated and the passion of it being your own child as well um so yeah it, it was the the point for me um, and going back to sorry, going back to the question about dyslexia and things, my experience previously, until I learnt more, I didn't realise that my brother and my mum are most probably dyslexic. Um, and they both agree as well. My brother's in education. Um, but interestingly, they don't have the slow processing speed at all. So it's that importance again of remembering with every type of neurodiversity, no one's the same. And there's all these different things. So we had dyslexia in the family. It's on uh, the other side of the family for my son as well. And he started school. I, I knew there were some blocks when he was tiny. Um, and okay. it's terrible because you automatically compare your children, even though you say, I'm not comparing them, but, and I've got a daughter who's nearly two years older who didn't have the same difficulties. Um, and so you start noticing things. And then he started school and actually his reception year, he came out at the end of the reception year with incredible assessments for his baseline assessments because most of that was practical and oral. It wasn't writing things down um, and there wasn't too much emphasis on reading. And I actually, I think at that stage, he probably came up a higher assessment level than my daughter, whereas the rest of the way through primary school, it was the other way around. Yeah. And I said early on, I think ultimately at the end of the day, when they get to adults, it will be proved that they're very similar intelligence level, but they're going to achieve differently. Yeah. Um, and then when he went into year one, he was taught by a good friend of mine um, who said to me one day, look, I'm not quite sure what to do. When we do, it was at the stage where in primary schools, it was a really big thing to do a big right. So yeah. teachers would find their ways to feel creative. They'd have candles, well, the battery candles. Sometimes they'd have jelly beans that were like their magic bean for to eat so that they could inspire them. There was all sorts of amazing Really? That's, oh, yeah, there's that's such nice. creativity going on. Um, and, and this colleague, or ex-colleague of mine, was, was the same, who's fantastic. But Josh would start writing. It would take him a long time to get down on paper what he wanted. And then he would rub it all out because really? he'd look at it and he'd know that no one else was going to be able to read it. He couldn't read it back. How was anyone else going to read it back? So what's the point of it being on the paper? Oh, so he would God. rub it all out. Now, I'm thankful to his teacher that he recognised what was happening because there would be some situations, I'm sure, where he would have just got told off for not doing anything. 
Whereas yeah. the teacher could see he'd done it and he'd got frustrated with himself and he'd rubbed it out. And at that point, when he, I realized it was affecting his self-esteem, I there was no stopping me. <laughs> um, yeah, I needed yeah. to do something. I couldn't let it affect his self-esteem. He then went on in the following year. He's always been very good at maths. And that's been his sort of real strength. Yeah. And actually relating anything to numbers for him really helps. So if he's yeah. got to remember things, if you can relate it to numbers, it's fine. Um, for instance, there was there was one Mother's Day a few years ago where um, they'd bought me perfume. He had no idea a week later what it was they'd given me, but he knew exactly how much it cost. Really? <laughs> because it was a number. That meant that, something. That, that number, that fine detail. Yeah. 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 So he was there yeah. with it. And as he moved through school, um, it was really difficult for his teachers and, and for him because most children, his ability at maths were good readers by then. So yeah. they could be sent off on their own in a group, do word problems, do higher level maths and just get on with it. He couldn't because he couldn't read the question to start with. And so he was brought down a maths group and working with children who weren't that's as able as him. That's the thing, isn't it? That's the initial. So the the initial start of the task is unable to even even go through the process because the initial question is is something that he's they're unable yeah. to. Yeah, and and that was an awful experience. And at the time, I had to really juggle in my head the whole look. I understand how difficult it is for the teacher, who's a very experienced, very good teacher. Yeah, absolutely. But also at this point. I've got my mum head on and I'm not having my son knocked or learn miss out on his maths learning, which he loved doing because he can't read the questions. But but it is a genuine problem because what do you do in a class? You you can't sit with every child and read to them the questions. So you do think, oh, those ones, they can just get on with it. They can do it. And then when you've got someone who's very good at maths but can't read well. I think, I think, I think you, you know, you... You, you hit the nail on the head on that one, Liz. You know, it's incredibly difficult, um, you know, with one student in the sense, in, in that sense. But when, and this is why my hat goes off to, to anyone in the educational and the teaching sector, because it is it is so difficult. Because like you said, every single child is different. Every single some you know person with dyslexia is, dyslexia is different. My dyslexia is different from this person, this person, this yeah. person. So so to then put all that together into a into a classroom, to then have you know this is the this is the, the topic that we're covering this is the work that you need to do and then suddenly you have all that new neurodiverse and then people who are not neurodiverse it's it's like a whole kind of mixing pot isn't it which is yeah. incredibly really really difficult to fine tune in and, and help that those elements yeah yeah and I think that was um I found it incredibly difficult to teach full time because I constantly had all these battles in my head of how I could help every single child in the class. And that's really hard when you've got 30 different needs going on. And I couldn't block off from that when I got home because I was always thinking, oh, well, that child could do that. And, oh, I could. Oh, that would benefit them. And realistically, I'm not sure any teacher could maintain that long term. Um, and it's another reason why it suits me doing part-time teaching, part-time something else. But if you've got that sense of I've got to be able to help every child, then it's hard to switch off from that. And you feel like you're failing if you're not. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's really tough for for teachers and for parents and, and for the students. Um, and I think that my key thing that I wish I could get across to all parents and teachers is understand the frustration the other person is feeling. Um, nobody doesn't want to help a child. No, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there are different types of people, there are different types of teachers, but I genuinely don't believe there's a teacher out there who doesn't want to help the children they're teaching. Um, so it's just understanding each other and listening and listening to each other's expertise. Because as a parent, you know certain things about your child, yeah. but you don't know what they're like in the classroom. So don't assume. Yeah. They're this little angel. <laughs> um, there's a lot of distractions, isn't there? I, I probably yeah. imagine there's a you know it's a different environment, and you know there, there are a lot of uh, distractions in 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 that element. Liz, I, I'd love to talk to you about um, the the um, the exam um, styles that that we have, um, if if you wouldn't mind. Now, um, I, you know, from my own personal experience, I wasn't able to be put through any exams, and that was 
from my undiagnosed dyslexia. But I do, you know, I'm a, a massive advocate for the educational system. Um, but it's really interesting to get your your kind of views on this. So if you want mind, so how do you feel about, you know, the current exam styles? Um, and do you think that they help neurodiverse individuals to demonstrate their full potential? What what what's your, your views on, on, on that? Yeah, it, it's something that I, again, feel quite passionately about, quite strongly, and I'm sort of always working away at and um, sort of looking at ways that I can help to change things, really. And I can learn more because... I think over the last um, five years, more maybe now, we've gone backwards in some ways in the way we're examining children. And it's very much reliant on memory. Whereas in the real world, thankfully, because my memory isn't great, we don't have to remember a lot at all. We Google it (laughs) or we look at it up somewhere else. There's all sorts of sources information just there for us. We don't have to memorize hardly anything. The important thing for me is being able to find reliable sources of information because there is that problem nowadays that people will be like, oh, well, so you didn't know. No, I didn't know that. Are you sure that's accurate? (laughs) It's that kind of check your sources and then manipulate and interpret that information for whatever you need it for. I mean, the amount of times in my, well, various parts of my job, the teaching and the comm side, that... I'm asked to do something that it's the first time I've ever done it. Um, and I could just sit there and think, oh my goodness, I can't do it. Or I could just have a go and make it up. Or what I normally do is I get onto forums, I get onto the internet, I will find out. I'm like, yeah, I can do it. And to yes. me, that ability to find things out and then do it is so much more important than memorizing facts. And a lot of our education has become about certainly when my son first went to secondary school um, and he started at a different school to where he is now, it was all about facts and they were given a book for every subject, a booklet for every subject, all these facts they had to learn and they were very dry. And and he was meant to write them out every night, these facts over and over. And I just thought, no, what, why in the real world? Take it from the, take it from the, the, the actual textbook write out on your own paper and and then that what that that acts is if because you've written it down it will act as a memory and then what you then take that information and then you're able to answer the test questions yeah the idea was they were key facts that you were going to build on throughout school so that when you got to GCSE you'd take your exam you'd have all those facts ready and you could build on um just uh, yeah there'll be a few children who it would work for and actually some neurodiverse children possibly your more autistic children would actually love that way of just learning the facts and get on with it but can they then interpret the information and use it in different ways um and and i realized that it was because i mean and some really top level educationists schools were doing this same style um so it wasn't the fault of yeah, it's it a standard process that that you know, it was led by the change in exams and the okay. exams very much being a focus on get rid of coursework get rid of that side of it just remember facts and it just okay. it still blows my mind at the moment because i just think it's just not real life and it's really not helping our students to actually show what they can do we should be able to say well actually that child is really empathetic that child is really good at problem solving that rather than well they didn't know what year the battle of hastings was or whatever it might you know it's you can look that up find it i think if we i think you know it's tricky isn't it because we tend to you know we have our our mobile devices and and if we want to you know our friend and our friend google um we tend to uh you know it outside of school i guess you know and we would definitely if they want to find information out they'd either you know ask a friend ask a parent or nine times out of ten they'll just go straight onto google and they'll find that you know that information so i guess it's a it's a hard balance to then take what the real you know the reality of the world is is how they'll find information out when they leave school to then be able to i I guess test you know within an exam uh, you know, format that they have the you know the knowledge to be able to do find information out in a different way, even though when they come out of school they'll find it in the other way. So it is a it's, it's a fine balance, isn't it? It is it is quite 
it's quite tricky really it is difficult and i i wouldn't ever there are certain things we do just need to know and i'd yeah. never say you know you shouldn't learn any facts there are certain things that it's much easier if you've got those basics but I just think if our um, exam situation was a little bit more flexible or actually just modernized, um, it would help. And another thing with that is that I, having worked within education, within dyslexia, I worked for the British Dyslexia Association for a couple of years and was involved in policy stuff and talking about schools and what was happening. And I have literally only in the last six months realize that children who get um, access arrangements to use a laptop or a keyboard for exams don't get an electronic copy of the exam paper. I just assumed if you get that, Ooh. then the paper is there in front of you on the computer. Um, and it was through talking to my son, who's never been too keen to use, he's got brilliant keyboarding skills, he touch types, but he's never been keen to do his end of year or end of unit tests on his Chromebook at school, which they all have a Chromebook, which is brilliant. And I was talking to him and I thought, is it because he doesn't want to be different? Is it this? And he went, well, no, but you know, it's difficult because you've got to look at the paper and then you've got to answer the questions and then you've got to work out where you are. A lot and, of uh, yeah, and his um, Senko is a new Senko this year and absolutely brilliant. And I, I messaged him and went, sorry, look, this is a bit more of a parent thing than a teach thing, but you know, the, <laughs> the lines are blurred. <laughs> why don't we give them the paper on the computer? And he came back and said, well, because that's not what they get at GCSE and A-level. And I was gobsmacked that I didn't realise that. And that, but but why? And the yeah. thought that I think myself, if I had to go between it being written on a hard copy paper and then me writing out my answers, so having to show which question I'm on. Now, on I think I'd get confused and I'd end up missing things. Plus, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paper, sometimes you choose to do the things you find easier first and then yes. come back to it. Yeah. Now, okay, you could do that on the computer and you could sort of add in extra bits, but I think you're going to get in such a jumble. So that's a big thing of mine mm -hmm. at the moment, trying to look into that, making that a more um, more friendly process. Do you think they will? I mean, what you know... I, Obviously, I know, you know, things like that have to go through the board and, and there, you know, there's so many huge um, decisions to be made uh, for, for, for those to happen. But can you see within the, you know, the, the work that you used to do with, you know, the British Sex Association, the work that you, you know, the important work that you do now uh, in the education, can you see things changing, say, in the next five years? I know it's quite a, I mean, we hope, uh, but, but can you, do you think that... I'm really hopeful that it's one positive that will come out of the pandemic um, because obviously we haven't been able to do exams in the same way last year and again this year yeah. and, and I mean that's caused all sorts of stress to Jeez. teachers and students and everything else but I'm hoping it's going to be a real good time to reflect on okay what does work what doesn't work? What have we done now that works well? Um, and we're in a situation at the moment where I'm, I've got a daughter in year 11, so she's very much sort of waiting to hear exactly what's happening. And then I've got colleagues who are teaching GCSE and A-level and waiting to hear what's happening. Um, and it's, you know, one minute, it might be mini assessments, it might not be, and then the students might see them, they might not. But actually, however frustrating it is and however much it's making people anxious at the moment, I love that everything's having to be looked at and new things considered. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, th there's so many elements, you know, not just in the educational and the corporate side of it, where we're looking to now facilitate support from home and, and all these things. It does seem, you know, um, you know, this horrific situation that's that's kind of happened. It has evaluated and made, we, you know, people mm. kind of... Stuff. There's, uh, I'd like to get your, your views if, if you don't mind. So, what what would you, what do you think would you know would make the biggest difference to ensure people with dyslexia reach uh, their full potential and do not leave school with low self esteem? Now, I think you know that the self esteem element is you know is so important in in the sense that we you know we don't want children leaving school with low self esteem, uh, and because once we go back out into the into the workplace, uh, it's you know it's very competitive world it's very you know very challenging in, in so many different areas so what do you think you know the biggest difference we could we could do to help uh, if you don't mind 
the key thing for me, and then I'll talk about why it's so important as well, um, is teacher education. And it's actually a lot of the things that I've discovered about teaching and helping neurodiverse children are very simple, easy things like the having a brain break. That's not, it's not, you know, rocket science, very simple things. But if you're not taught those kind of things when you're first training to be a teacher, to adapt your style later on is really hard. You've got so many pressures as a teacher. Do this, do that. Make sure you're always assessing. Make sure this child isn't talking too much. Make sure this child is talking more and coming out of themselves. Make sure this is happening. And then if someone says, and I know I must be a really frustrating colleague <laughs> for lots of um, teachers I've worked with because I'm like, well, think about your dyslexic students. Think about your new diverse students. Well, are you doing this? Are you doing that? And it's like, I can't think of anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Mind blowing. I'm trying to do everything I can. Whereas if right from the beginning of teacher training, a dyslexia-friendly style, which generally suits everyone and certainly doesn't do any harm to anyone, if that is just taught as a standard way, and it's not so structured that you can only teach one way, it's just little tips like things like the brain break, um, Oh my goodness, I just think it would make such a difference to every student and every teacher. It would make teachers' lives easier. And which brings me on to the kind of the key importance in that so many children either get low self-esteem or start misbehaving, or often the two are together, because generally a dyslexic child will be really quite intelligent. So they know there's something going on. They're not just a low-level child who is quite happy at their level. They, they've got their brain ticking over and all these ideas going through, but they can't do what they're being asked. And that's really frustrating. So that will come out as bad behavior or them losing confidence in themselves. And then if we fast forward, if that goes all the way through school and they leave feeling like a failure, but actually they've got a very clever mind, yeah. then... If you look at the statistics around the amount of um, prisoners who are dyslexic or have dyslexic tendency, yeah. it's like, like nearly 50% of prisoners are thought to have dyslexia or literacy difficulties. About 10% of the population, the general population, is dyslexic. So that's way, there's a huge discrepancy. Yeah. And then yeah. you've got about... 30% of entrepreneurs that are dyslexic. So wouldn't it be amazing if we could, if those children didn't go through school feeling stupid and finding other ways to use their brain that aren't ideal for anybody, but instead they feel empowered. They're allowed to use their brain in a different way and they become entrepreneurs and change the world for us and add to those numbers of people who are just succeeding and just really changing things. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, I mentioned this before, but there needs to be some sort of um, process, I guess, because if you if you think about, say, a child goes to school, goes to primary school, and then they highlight, say, you know, dyslexic tendencies uh, within that student. And then we have to go through the, you know, the, the big process then to get getting, you know, that that support. Say that student then gets, say, the, you know, the last two years of their education within their support. When they leave uh, the, you know, in work, go into the workplace, and there are some incredible companies out there now that's doing mm -hmm. some amazing yeah. work around neurodiversity. But, but again, it's very uh, it's very new in in in, in sense that companies aren't you know, they're embracing it or they're they're just starting to work on it. But it's almost like that that person then gets the support there, and then suddenly there's no support, um, you know, within those elements. And and I think that I mean, in an ideal world, it'd be amazing to have the support throughout the whole. Um, you know, throughout the whole process. But there is a there's a missing link in that. It's weird, but the best thing I think for anyone, and this is the thing that I try to get across to parents that I support, that to get the child to build up their own strategies. So Amazing. good quality, sexier friendly teaching doesn't mean you do everything for the child. You gradually get them to do more and more themselves and build up their confidence and to be able to adapt and use their strengths for their weaknesses. And if Love you've that. spent years going through school, building up those strategies and that growth mindset, then when they go into the workplace, actually they will find their own strategies. And yes, it's great if they've got accommodating um, organization as well, but it won't be as essential. Yes. 
Yeah, absolutely. Rather than, you know, because if we go on that basis, then, you know, the dependency is that, yes, my school should support me. Yes, my organization should, you know, support me. And, and yes, there are, there are elements within that. But you're absolutely right. You know, that 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 child then has that self-esteem and that confidence yeah. and the strategies to kind of help. You know, I, th I think back to, you know, I was diagnosed very late, kind of 36, 37. And you know, the, the strategies I'm still, you know, at 44, I'm still working on certain strategies that, that kind of work for me. You know, the, the fact that when my dyslexia gets, you know, I get stressed or I get tired, you know, the words start moving around or something, uh, you know, I tend to shut the laptop down, go for a walk. But before I would work excessively to try and almost override those things that were really kind of stopping me. So so I think strategies are so, so important. Um, and finding, like I said, what works for you, you know, but, you know, going for a walk or something might work for me, might not work for someone else. It might be, um, you know, a, a few other strategies um, that happen. Yeah, and if you have that own understanding, that self-awareness of what works for you, that is so powerful um and that that's i think the best thing we can do for students at school to empower them um so that they come out as strong individuals who can cope themselves and so, then do amazing things in our community so just uh, um just quick quickly liz do you, do you have any kind of um things that have worked well for, for yourself or for, for your son you know that you could kind of share um whether it's you know technology strategies you know whatever it, it worked do, do you have anything um you know personal to yourselves yeah um i'm a big believer in using technology to help um i noticed that with my son's father as i said he was dyslexic although not diagnosed yeah um he just happened to learn to touch type when he was at school because of one of his GCSEs he did. It was almost like an office studies kind of thing. Okay. And I have to say, when I first met him, I used to laugh at him and say, oh, you did like a secretarial course, Bob. And then I was like, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. It's yeah. so useful. And because of his dyslexia, to be able to type without having to think about what he was doing meant he could think about the words, whereas otherwise... If you're asking a dyslexic person to write, they're thinking about how to write often, as well as what to write. Whereas for me, it's completely automatic. And, and for a lot of dyslexic people, it becomes automatic. I'm not saying that every, everyone who's dyslexic has to think about how to write. But especially early on, you are thinking about how to write. So how do you then think about what to write? Um, so that's why we got our son to uh, learn to touch type and a lot of my work is around um, touch typing now actually one of my main clients that I mentioned earlier the other thing that I always say to parents um, again you need to work out what your child's strengths are because it won't work for everyone some yeah. children who are dyslexic also struggle with numbers whereas yeah. for my son numbers are his happy place <laughs> yeah. um, less so I'd say as he goes through secondary school and maths has changed a bit <laughs> and it, there's different elements to take in but certainly yeah. when he was little he just loved numbers and actually <laughs> it was a treat for him and, and his sister to be given maths questions like finish your tea and then I'll give you a maths question really? <laughs> and, and I remember my older sister laughing at me saying like what is going on but he was empowered Absolutely. He, felt he was good at it and he was good at it. And what I would do is if I'm I I'm not um a sort of typical mum parent who will do everything for my children. I'm so busy and doing lots of other things, I want them to do things for themselves. But I appreciate you can't just get them to do it. So I would do things like we'd start off in the morning saying, right, I want you to remember three things: brush your teeth, brush your hair, get your shoes on ready for going to school and would repeat that every day so it's those three things what are those three things I'd say them then after a while he'd say them back to me then it got to a stage where I could say right you've got three things to do and he would just know them because there's one two three yeah and then it's like eventually the stage of are you ready and that was an automatic process then of one two three I've done all yeah done it yeah, and yeah, I yeah, yeah. use that for so much to pass that independence over so that they become yeah. independent rather than you telling them and it and a lot of really lovely parents um don't help their children because they're too kind to them 
So they're like, oh, don't yeah, worry, I'll do it. It's a natural instinct, isn't it? You know, you, you yeah. want to kind of protect and you want to help. And, yeah, um, and it's tricky to do it yourself sometimes, but it's not helping <laughs> the child in the long run. So using that, so for example, for him, because it's uh, numbers that he relates to, lots of things we related to numbers. Um, yeah. Images can be really useful. Um, so for someone who's dyslexic, instead of saying to them, right, start writing a story, jot down your keywords, just draw a picture. Now, obviously for me, that would be a big panic and no, I can't do that, I'd much rather words. But for someone who doesn't like words so much and has got all these amazing images, it's incredible the impact Absolutely. that you have of them drawing things down and then they can start writing. And and those those you know like I said there's a whole host of different things and it's understanding how to kind of help and understand you know you know opening those those communication uh, you know pathways yeah. within you know the, the educational side of it but also with with your student um, as well. There's it's been absolutely yeah. incredible uh, uh, talking with yourself and like I said I could talk for for hours about so many uh, we haven't even scratched the surface on lots of different topics that we were we were going to uh, talk no, about. We haven't, no. <laughs> time just flies just flies yeah Listen, people wanted to kind of uh, get in contact with you um and again i'll put all the you know the the links and bits and pieces um you know on on this anyway but if, if people wanted to connect with you how, how would they do that um best to do it through linkedin or through twitter on twitter i am at lizzie lolly um i'm not quite sure how there was another liz lolly already in existence because there aren't many of us lollies around but i'm at <laughs> Lizzie Lolly. Um, just talking about those links as well, I'd just like to mention one of the links that I've asked you to yeah. put on is um, an, a short animation that the British Dyslexia Association created called See Dyslexia Differently. Yeah. Please, please, please. We look will. We will. You are, share it with people, share it with children, Absolutely. share it with adults. It's really beneficial um, and we'll, powerful. We'll, we'll. We'll post that onto onto the links, and then we'll do a separate post um, as well, um, maybe on the YouTube uh, and um, for for those elements for people to see. But um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely, Liz, it's been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much uh, indeed for uh, for your time. If anyone else has any any other questions, then please pop them in the chat, and we'll we'll get back to you on that one. But um, apart from that, we will see you. Uh, I'll see you again very soon, Liz. And thank you so much indeed for your uh, for your time. Take care, Liz. Thank, thank you. you. Everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Take care. So guys, that was Liz Lolly. Thank you so much uh, for taking part in our neurodiversity stories, Liz. Uh, it's incredible to talk to you. And uh, like I said, we've got so many different topics that we could have uh, continued to discuss for throughout the rest of the day. Thank you as always for everyone that takes part and watches these lives, listens on the podcast and uh, watches again on our YouTube channel. We will be back next Friday uh, at 11 o'clock if you would love to join us. Uh, that would be absolutely fantastic. And if you would love to share your neurodiversity story with us, then please do get in touch. Take care, guys, and I'll see you next Friday. Cheers. Bye-bye.